Thank you very much, Emma. Can, can you all hear me all right? Yeah? Okay, jolly good. Um, well, thank you, first of all, for coming, everybody, this evening, and thanks to Science Oxford for inviting me. It's always nice to get a chance to come back to Oxford um, and, um, and be here. Um, I've been asked to talk about exploring the universe, which is a really big subject. And what I've done um, for the talk this evening is pick some of the, the bits of current research uh, about the solar system, about our galaxy, and about the universe in general, and where it all came from, that I think are particularly exciting right now. So it's my personal tour of the universe, if you like, uh, and I'm sure if you got another astronomer in next week, he would give you a very different, or, or she would give you a very different version um, of, of what is exciting at the moment. Um, and as we'll see, I think we're living in a very, very exciting age for astronomy. Now, this is a bit of a special week and a special year because Tuesday the 12th of April, two days ago, marked the 50th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin becoming the first human being to orbit the Earth. So he was the first person to see the Earth like this, um, a familiar view to all of us, but this is something that for only half a century human beings have been able to experience. That momentous event really has kick-started a whole new age for the human race, the space age that we live in now. Um, hundreds of people have followed Yuri Gagarin's example and gone into space. We've been to the moon. As we speak, there are half a dozen people in the International Space Station whizzing around the Earth once every 90 minutes. Um, and we also have a fleet of unmanned spacecraft spreading out inexorably through the solar system. We have craft in orbit around Mercury, around Venus, um, thousands of satellites and spacecraft in orbit around the Earth, either looking down or looking out into space. We have spacecraft orbiting Mars, spacecraft on the surface of Mars roving around, and we'll see those in a, in a bit. We have a spaceship the size of a bus, which has been orbiting Saturn since 2004. We have a spaceship on its way to Pluto, which will get there in a few years' time, and we have spacecraft on their way to visit comets and asteroids, and even three spacecraft which, after 30 years of travelling, are almost at the edge of our solar system. So this is a tremendous achievement um, and really a very, very exciting time, I think, to be alive, not just to be an astronomer. Now, I work at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, which is part of the National Maritime Museum, and the connection there is very strong. The observatory was founded in the 17th century to use the stars and the moon and the planets as a way of navigating at sea. So it was a very practical use for astronomy. But I think there's another very strong parallel today, and that is that just like the great ocean voyages of the 18th century, we are living in a tremendous age of discovery. And the parallels, I think, are very strong, and this is what I think they are. So you can see here, we've got voyages which last for years or even decades, when Captain Cook went around the world. It took him three years to circumnavigate the globe. Um, really tremendous achievement. You're going out into hostile environments. Um, in space, you've got no air, there's no food, there's no water. You have to take everything you need with you. Even these unmanned probes um, have to take the power that they need. They have to have components that will not wear out because there's no one that's going to come and fix them or replace things. Uh, and they're exposed to extremes of temperature, high radiation environments, and hard vacuum. So really very, very extreme conditions that they have to cope with. Limited resources, as I say, you have to carry whatever you need with you because you're not going to find a shop out there to stock up um, on the way. 
Um, and just like those voyages in the 18th century, what the humans and the robots that are going out into space are doing is exploring new frontiers and expanding our knowledge of the universe and our understanding of our place within it. So that's where I think there are great parallels today. Now, this is where I work, the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, and this is what it looked like when it was founded in the 17th century. Um, and you can see, if you've been to Greenwich, you'll realise this is very different from how it is today. You can see at the time, Greenwich was a lovely little village on the banks of the Thames. London was over here somewhere, um, and the Thames absolutely full of ships. The Isle of Dogs, where Canary Wharf is, was just pasture land. So very, very different. This is what it looks like today. Still have the same building built by Christopher Wren in the 17th century. Very beautiful old building, but we have some more uh, later buildings now, which you'll see in a moment. And this is probably the thing that we are most famous for. This line in the courtyard here that all the tourists are standing on is the meridian line uh, for the whole world. Um, it's what defines our positioning system. It's what GPS system is still based on. All of the maps are based on it. And it's actually defined by the crosshairs of the telescope which are in this building. So our entire coordinate system still defined ultimately by astronomy. And this is our way of marking the meridian in the 21st century. We have a laser beam which comes out of the building here and travels for about 70 kilometres on a clear night across the River Thames and out into Essex. So um, look out for that if you're in East London at any point after dark. It's on every night. We're part of the National Maritime Museum. We're a UNESCO World Heritage Site. We're a museum of the history of astronomy, navigation and timekeeping. Greenwich Mean Time is obviously the other thing we're famous for. But we're also, just like Science Oxford, a science centre, an education centre for schools. And we also have a, a London's only planetarium now. So if you book tickets for the, um, the planetarium, please don't turn up at, uh, at Baker Street, Madame Tussauds, five minutes before the show is due to start. Some people still do that. There is not a planetarium there anymore. We're the only one in London. And we're better than they were. And this is actually our planetarium. The dome on which we project the night sky is underneath this um, rather space-age-looking bronze cone, and that's the latest addition to the, the Greenwich skyline. So we're, we're very proud of that. Do come and see us at some point. Uh, and this is another view at night when it's all lit up, so we're quite, um, quite proud of that. So this is what we do. We're there for the public. We do schools wor workshops. 20,000 school kids come through our astronomy workshops every year. We run observing sessions for the public um, throughout the winter months and even during the day we have solar observing sessions looking at the sun um, during the day in the summer. We do a lot of public talks and courses just like Science Oxford. Uh, we have our planetarium where we do shows. Um, we have some displays and exhibition uh, galleries uh, all about modern astronomy as well as the history of astronomy and we also provide astronomy expertise um, for the media so you might see one of us wheeled out to comment on Hubble's latest discovery or something like that. And we have the largest refracting telescope in the UK uh, which you can get a look through if you come to one of our observing sessions. Well I want to start by kind of explaining what modern astronomers do because I think when you hear the word astronomer this is kind of the picture that comes into your mind isn't it really it's a man with a beard he's got funny clothes on and he stays up all night looking through a telescope um, and in fact I'm sorry to disappoint you but actually modern astronomy is much more like this you're just as likely to find a lady in an observatory as you are a man we have six astronomers at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich and three of them are women um, if you want to know a little bit more about the history of women in astronomy even before women were technically allowed to be scientists some pioneering ladies did some amazing work I've got a few of these uh, booklets here so if you're interested do take one um, they're free um, we'd be very happy for them to go so I don't have to carry them back on the train 
Most astronomers only spend a few nights per year using telescopes. The telescopes are very big and very expensive. There are lots of astronomers in the world and we all want to get time on them. The limiting resource is time. There are only 365 nights in a year, so the competition is pretty fierce. And you spend a lot of your time writing up a case for why you should get time on the big telescopes, on Hubble or on Gemini or on Keck or any of these large telescopes. If you get your time, you probably will have one or two nights on the telescope, but the information, the pictures, the data that you will get from it are so valuable and so rich in information that you probably will spend the rest of the year back home at your computer analysing them. And then you'll present the data and try to understand what it's telling you about the universe. Uh, and probably what you'll find is it raises as many questions as it answers and the next year you're back at the telescope trying to answer those questions. So that's what keeps us all in work, but it's a very exciting way to go. One of the reasons that it's so hard to get time on telescopes is that the telescopes we use today are very big and very expensive. They tend to be international collaborations. No one country can afford to fund these things by themselves. And they are huge. And these are two of the world's current largest optical telescopes, telescopes that use visible light, the kind that we can see with our eyes. Uh, they're both in Hawaii. This one is called Gemini. Its mirror is eight metres across. And you can see it here in the background. This is while it's being constructed. That's the mirror. That's the thing that collects all of the light and focuses it together to make an image. And this one here, the Keck telescope, is actually 10 metres across. You can see this little orange blob in the middle is one of the engineers just checking out the mirror surface. Now, you, the pupil of your eye, which is what lets the light into your eye and allows your eye to form an image, even when it's very dark and your pupil's fully dilated, it's less than a centimetre across, and that limits the amount of light that can get into your eye. Effectively, the pupil for these telescopes is 8 to 10 metres across, and that means that they can collect literally hundreds of thousands of times more light per second than your eye can. And that allows them to see things which are hundreds of thousands of times fainter than you could ever hope to see with your eyes. And with sophisticated electronic detectors on the back, they can see things even fainter than the retina of your eye could ever pick up. And the other advantage of having large mirrors like this is the wider the mirror, the finer the detail you can see in the final image. And I'm going to try and show you an example of that in this little uh, movie. So let's see if we can blow this up and start it. Here we go. So this is a picture taken by a smallish telescope of a, a region of glowing gas in our galaxy. And what we're doing is we're zooming in to show what Hubble, a larger telescope, can see. So we're zooming in on this little patch of glowing gas and we're zooming in, and we're still zooming in, and we're still zooming in, and you can see the amount of detail that Hubble can show. And so this is what Hubble reveals from that tiny, tiny little blob of, of glowing gas that was practically invisible in the original image. And if we let that cycle through, um, it should play through again, and you can just see, um, if it will go back, there we go. So I think we're going to zoom in there. So modern telescopes show us things about the universe that we would never, ever be able to see um, without this very powerful technology. The telescope, only 400, 402 years old. So that really has transformed our view of the universe. And this object that Hubble is looking at is a cloud of dust and gas in which new stars are forming um, in this dense, dusty region up here. Uh, we know from... Um, various studies that new stars are currently forming. So this data is giving us a, a view, if you like, of what our own 
solar system would have looked like billions of years ago when it was in the process of forming. This picture, in a sense, is a picture of our own origins. It's where we come from. And without Hubble and other telescopes, we would be blind to this kind of thing. OK. Back to the talk. <coughs> I want to wind us back from the depths of space to my favourite planet in the universe. It's the Earth. It's our home. This is one of my favourite space pictures ever. It was taken by a spacecraft called Galileo, uh, which was not designed to study the Earth. It was designed to study Jupiter. And it took this image uh, as a kind of a farewell to home as it swung past the Earth on its way out to Jupiter, really just to test its cameras. Um, but what a beautiful picture it sent back. And you can see here the Earth and the Moon in the background. And I think this really encapsulates what is so incredible about the planet that we live on. Because here is the Moon. It's made of the same kind of material as the Earth. It formed at roughly the same time. It's at the same distance from the Sun. So it receives the same amount of heat and light that we do. But it's a bit too small to have held onto an atmosphere. And so it has no air. And it is completely dead and barren. The Earth here, just the right size to hold on to a nice, dense atmosphere. It traps the heat from the sun. The temperature at the surface is just right for water to be liquid rather than steam or ice. So 70% of the Earth's surface is covered in liquid water, the only place in the universe so far that we have found that has liquid water on its surface. All sorts of complicated things going on. Water evaporating from the oceans, forming clouds which rain over the land. You can see down the coast of South America this green colour, which is visible from space. That is the green of a chemical called chlorophyll, which is the pigment in plants' leaves. So this is the colour of life. And the plants themselves are changing the atmosphere. They take energy from the sun and they combine it with water and carbon dioxide and they turn it into food, sugar, and as a byproduct, they produce oxygen. So 22% of the Earth's atmosphere is made of oxygen, which comes from plants. Oxygen is a very reactive gas. If all the plants on Earth died tomorrow, within a few hundred years, all of the oxygen in our atmosphere would have reacted with the rocks, with the oceans. It would be gone. So with very simple scientific equipment, you can scan the Earth's atmosphere, see that it's made substantially of oxygen, and that tells you that there is life on Earth. It's the only place the oxygen can come from. This is a very special planet. Another life form on Earth also modifies the atmosphere. If this picture had been taken just a few hours earlier, this part of South America would have been in darkness, and you would have seen all the way down um, Texas and Mexico and through down through Peru and Chile the lights of our cities, lit by electricity, produced largely by burning fossil fuels, which puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. We're engaged in a massive experiment, unprecedented experiment, changing the composition of our atmosphere. And we don't know what effect that's going to have. Um, might think, looking at the Earth, so small and so fragile, slightly um, crazy and rash thing to do, but we are doing it. So this is a, a very, very special picture. And without the space-age technology that came from people like Yuri Gagarin and the people working on the early space program, pictures like this and the ability to see the Earth as a planet and to study it as a planet would be impossible. So the fact that we actually, just in time, have recognised that we might be damaging our planet is in part down to the fact that we can get things off the surface and see the Earth as a whole, as a planet, in its real context. Now, this is a picture taken close to where I grew up in Yorkshire. And when we think about nature in, in England, this is kind of the, the sort of the, the picture that I think jumps into most of our heads. But I just show it to make the point that actually this is a completely artificial environment. If there were no human beings on the British Isles, 
most of the landscape would be covered in these things, instead of oak and ash, trees, and in fact the grasses that you see here dominating the landscape would be confined to small natural clearings. We have changed the landscape of the British Isles to suit ourselves and to suit the animals that we like to live alongside us because they're useful to us. These grass and animals, the cattle, we've changed this part of the world to suit them and to suit ourselves. This is not a natural environment. But I want to make the point that the Earth has many, many different ecosystems on it. And when you see sci-fi movies about alien planets, you'll often have the jungle planet or the ice planet or the ocean planet. I think, my prediction is, if in the next few years we start to discover planets like the Earth which have their own life on them, that they will be just as varied and just as unique and beautiful as our own planet. So here is just a gallery of some of the environments. Forests, we've got deserts which look barren but actually are um, teeming with life. The tropical rainforest, of course, incredibly rich environment. The um, Arctic and Antarctic oceans, again, look barren but absolutely full of life, from tiny plankton up to enormous whales. Another grassland, this time a natural grassland, and actually probably our own natural environment where we evolved over the last couple of million years. Mountains, again, all sorts of um, life forms there, and the oceans, 70% of the Earth's surface, again, full of different ecosystems and teeming with life. So a very, very varied and very beautiful and very special planet. It's not the only planet in the solar system, though, and this is the new view of the solar system. If you're under the age of 20, you will know that there are eight planets in the solar system. If you're over 20, you might still be laboring under the misapprehension that there are nine. It's been reclassified for a very good reason. The eight planets are Mercury, Venus, Mars, oh, Earth, sorry, I forgot the Earth, Mars, <laughs> everything I've just said, terrible, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Where's Pluto? Well, it's still there. Um, but something really interesting happened in the last 10 years or so. We used to think that Pluto was the last tiny gasp of the solar system, a tiny world smaller than the moon sitting right at the edge, the edge of, of beyond. In the last 10 years, we've discovered that that's not actually true and that, in fact, there are lots of things about the same size of Pluto, even further from the sun. Um, so we've got Eris, we have Haumea, which is sort of a weird sort of football-shaped um, planetoid, Maki Maki. Um, and they stretch beyond Pluto further out into the solar system. So, in fact, some people will say Pluto's been demoted. I don't think that's true. It's been reclassified because it's now the first of a really exciting new region of the solar system that we didn't even know existed until a few years ago. So, we call Pluto and these other things dwarf planets. What I want to do is take you on a quick whistle-stop tour of the solar system, some of the places that are in interesting and exciting right now because we're learning new things about them. So we don't have time to go everywhere in the solar system, but we'll do our best. So Venus, Earth's nearest neighbour in the solar system, sometimes called Earth's evil twin, it is about the same size as the Earth, very similar in size. However, in many ways, it couldn't be more different. This is what Venus looks like from space, and we have a space probe called Venus Express orbiting it right now. Um, you can see, well, what you can't see is the surface. Venus is wrapped in thick clouds. Often highly visible from Earth, it's the brightest thing in the night sky apart from the moon and the sun, um, visible either in the early morning before the sun rises or in the, in the evening just after the sun has set. The reason it's so bright is that this thick layer of cloud reflects huge amounts of sunlight and that's what um, produces this, this really bright um, glow, if you like. But we can 
With radar, see through the clouds, and over the years we've mapped the surface with radio waves, bouncing radar signals off the surface and back to Earth. And we've mapped the surface, and this is what it looks like. And you can see, very barren, very dry, there are no oceans. These are highland areas, so perhaps equivalent to Earth's continents, but where the, what would be the ocean beds are on Earth, it's just completely dry, completely barren. We have actually sent spacecraft to penetrate the clouds and land on the surface of Venus. The Russians sent a series back in the 70s and 80s, and this is what they saw. This is um, the Venera space probe, one of them, which landed on Venus. You can see part of the probe here. This arm, which folded out, has got bands of colour on it to allow the scientists back on Earth to calibrate the colour in the image. And you can see a horrible sort of sickly yellow kind of light. This is the sunlight filtering down through that thick deck of clouds. As it came down through the clouds, it discovered that the clouds are not made of water droplets as they are on Earth, they're made of sulfuric acid. So the first problem you have to contend with when you go on your holiday to Venus is sulfuric acid clouds which will corrode you. When it landed on the surface, it discovered two other nasty properties of Venus. One is the surface temperature is about 450 degrees centigrade. That's hotter than your oven. If you put a lump of lead on these rocks here, it would melt and flow like water. So the second problem you have is that you would be roasted alive. But there's a third problem, and that is that the air on Venus is 90 times thicker than the air on Earth. Above our heads right now, there is a column of air um, about 100 kilometres high, pressing down on us. We don't notice it because we've evolved to cope with that. On Venus, you've got 90 times more air pressing down on you. You would actually be squashed flat onto the ground by the weight of air above you. Your ribcage would be crushed. So as you were roasted and corroded, you'd also be squashed flat. <laughs> and the reason for the temperature is that that thick atmosphere on Venus is made mostly of carbon dioxide, very potent greenhouse gas. It traps the heat from the sun and Venus very early in, in its history went into a runaway greenhouse effect. By studying the atmosphere of Venus we can learn things about our own atmosphere. So this is an example of how studying another planet teaches us something useful about our own world. Just a few hours, just a few hours. They, none of them lasted particularly long. Um, they tested um, the initial probes on Earth in um, pressure and temperature changes. The first time they put a, a probe mock-up in the chamber, um, they opened it and they couldn't find the probe. And what they found eventually was just sort of melted metal, sort of splatted all over the, um, the inside of the chamber. So they really had to be very strong, but even then they didn't last very long. And we haven't been back there since the 80s, not to the surface. However, with radar, we can see that Venus does have some dramatic landscapes. And this is uh, a really high mountain on Venus. Might even be uh, a volcano. This is a CGI image of what it might actually look like if you were down there. So very barren, toxic, volcanic wasteland. Um, not my number one holiday destination in the solar system, I have to say. But if you like volcanoes and acid, then Venus is your place. Moving out into the solar system, Mars, the red planet. Um, again, some similarities to Earth. You can see it has polar ice caps. You can see it has a thin atmosphere. This time, about 1% the thickness of Earth's atmosphere. even has wispy clouds, and it has these um, mountainous regions and these extensive red, dusty deserts. Red because they actually do contain rust, um, iron oxide. 
And we have a lot of information about Mars because we have a fleet of spacecraft in orbit around it and also down on the surface. This is one of them that we should be proud of. It's the European Space Agency's Venus Express. Uh, it's been there since 2003 and it's still going strong, sending back amazing images. Mars also has some tremendous um, landscape features. You can see here this enormous valley system um, cutting across the surface. It's huge. The Grand Canyon in Arizona would fit comfortably into one of these little side channels. You can also see these dark blot blotches. These are what we think are extinct volcanoes and they are enormous. Um, here's that valley, uh, Valles Marineris, um, in a CGI view but using real NASA data. The whole of the United Kingdom would fit comfortably in the bottom of the valley. The uh, sides of the valley are eight kilometers high, uh, so roughly as high as Mount Everest. This is a huge, huge feature. It really is uh, an enormous thing, and it stretches for four and a half thousand kilometers, so sort of the width of the United States. And this is one of those volcanoes. This is Olympus Mons, and you can see here a tremendous feature. Although, if you were standing on the slopes of the volcano, 27 kilometers high, three times higher than Mount Everest, you probably wouldn't know you were on a mountain at all because it is so wide that the slope is incredibly gentle, 620 kilometers wide. But just to give you an idea, here is Mount Everest on Earth. Here is the Marianas Trench, the deepest um, trench um, on Earth. Here is that mountain on Venus. Um, Maxwell, and here is Olympus Mons, the highest mountain in the solar system. So that's on Mars. As I say, we have spacecraft on the surface. This is one of them, um, an artist's impression of um, one of the, the rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, about the size of a golf buggy covered in solar panels. That's where it gets its energy from. They've been there for about six years now, um, six or seven years, designed to last for three months, both of them still working, one of them still able to trundle around. They've covered dozens of kilometres on the surface. They're little robot geologists, and this is one of my favourite pictures. We've left tyre tracks um, on another planet. And you can see where it, it kind of did a bit of a manoeuvre here to study these, these rocks and drill into them and send back data and images back to the geologists eagerly waiting on Earth. So this is like a little robot scientist and it's been travelling around. And this, again, just a, a random picture. They've sent back thousands of pictures of the surface of Mars. This is a sand dune with um, some, uh, some rocks scattered on it. Um, and what amazes me about this picture is people have seen Mars as a little reddish dot in the night sky for thousands of years. For the first time in human history, we can actually see places on Mars. This is a real place. It's a real sand dune, as real as the bottom of your garden or the beach where you went on holiday last year. It's still there. The sand's probably blown around a little bit. These rocks are probably still in roughly the same positions. It's up there right now. This is a real place. We can see it for the first time ever in human history. And this is a picture taken looking down from space from one of the orbiting spacecraft of Victoria Crater. Uh, it's about half a kilometre across. You can see it's full of sand, sand dunes in the centre. And if we zoom in on this little corner bit, the edge of the crater here, can you see that little dot there? That is the Opportunity rover. So one of our spacecraft is looking down and seeing another one of our spacecraft down on the surface. Opportunity was looking for a safe route to go down into the crater because whatever had blasted out the crater millions of years ago had done a great job for a robot geologists like Opportunity. It dug a hole and Opportunity wanted to look at the layers of rock in the crater wall to get some idea of the geological history of Mars and to see whether conditions on Mars were ever more like conditions on the Earth, warm and wet with liquid water. And this is a view taken from Opportunity from that vantage point. And again, it's a real place. That's a real place. It's still up there right now, and we've sent something to visit it. It did go in, had a look, 
lots of interesting information and it came out and it's been trundling al along this, the surface of Mars ever since. Skipping out further into the solar system, and I don't have time to visit everywhere, but we're going to Saturn now. And we have a spacecraft at Saturn, it's called Cassini. It's been there since 2004, it's still going strong. It's been orbiting the planet, sending back images of Saturn's clouds and storms, Saturn's beautiful rings and Saturn's moons, more than 60 moons going around it. It's like a miniature solar system. Um, and what I want to focus on is one of those moons, Titan, the giant moon. And here you can see Saturn, beautiful um, pastel colours. The rings almost edge on in this vantage point. You can see the shadows they cast on, onto the disk of Saturn. Here's one of Saturn's moons and here is Titan. You can see it's casting a shadow onto Saturn. The sun is off over, over this side somewhere. Uh, and Titan looks, looks out of focus, doesn't it? It looks fuzzy, sort of fuzzy orange ball. It's not out of focus, it actually is fuzzy because Titan, giant moon, bigger than the planet Mercury, it's huge, has its own atmosphere, three times thicker than Earth's atmosphere, made mostly of nitrogen, just like our atmosphere is, but also with methane and all sorts of chemicals mixed in, and that's what gives it this orange, hazy look. We can't see through the clouds. A bit like Venus. And this, for decades, was the view that we had of Titan. Astronomers were itching to see what lay below the clouds. Too far away to do radar from Earth, so we had to wait until Cassini got there. And Cassini was carrying a hitchhiker, a European probe called Huygens, and Huygens was designed to parachute down through the clouds. Meanwhile, Cassini itself had some special cameras on board that could see in infrared light rather than visible light. And luckily, the clouds on Titan are transparent at infrared wavelengths. So these are some views that Cassini sent back. So here it is, invisible light, just a featureless, hazy, orange globe. But in the infrared, you can start to see surface features. What are these dark areas? What are these light areas? We wanted to find out. And that is what Huygens was going to tell us. And here it is, artist's impression, parachuting down through the clouds. It's about, about this big, not a massive spacecraft. And there's beautiful Saturn off in the distance, seen through a, a gap in the clouds. And these are some actual images that Huygens sent back. This is looking down from about 30 kilometers above the surface. It's now below the main cloud deck. You can see one of these flat, dark areas, which turn out to be flat, sandy plains. And you can see the light areas, which turn out to be rough, mountainous highlands. But look at this. What does it look like? Looks exactly like a river, doesn't it? Uh, and in fact, we think that is exactly what it is. The probe landed down here somewhere on the flat plane, and this is the one image that it sent back. You can see everything in this sort of orange kind of haze because the sunlight, again, is filtering down through the thick f fog of orange cloud. And you can see the dark um, sand that it's landed on and also these big rounded pebbles. This one's got a crack in it. We think actually it may have, have landed on the pebble, cracked it and bounced off slightly. Um, these pebbles are about the size of your fist and they are round and as soon as the picture was beamed back, sort of row by row, like a TV picture, astronomers got really excited. Looks like a, a pebble that you might find on the beach or in a riverbed or something like that. Round pebbles are not unusual on Earth. Um, however, we've never seen round pebbles anywhere else in the solar system because round pebbles are rounded by erosion, by liquid that rolls them along and smooths off all of their rough edges. 
Um, these pebbles have also been rounded by liquid. What we think happens is that seasonally there are tremendous rainstorms on Titan. Uh, rain falls from the orange clouds, it falls over the highlands, it flows down, carves out these river valleys and spills out onto the floodplains with a cargo of pebbles that is rolled all the way down and dumps them and leaves them there until the next rainy season and that's what we're seeing. However, the surface of Titan is minus 180 degrees centigrade. It's very cold. Water at that temperature is not a liquid, it's a solid. And in fact, these rocks, these pebbles, the sand, the mountains, are all made of ice. They're made of frozen water. It behaves like a rock on Titan. So what on earth is the liquid that rains from the clouds, flows through rivers and uh, erodes these pebbles into rounded shapes? It's methane, it's cooking gas, what comes out of your hob, um, what you burn in your central heating system. On Titan, at the temperatures and pressures on Titan, methane behaves like water does on Earth, and water behaves like rock does on Earth. So here we have this really bizarre world, which in some ways is the most similar place we've found to our own planet, and in other ways is completely different, very, very strange. Cassini itself has not been idle, it's been scanning from space um, using radar, um, strips of Titan, and this is what it's found close to the North Pole. The orange areas are rough and they reflect all the radar back. The dark areas are smooth and they don't reflect the radar at all. And in fact, these dark areas are so smooth, they can only be lakes of liquid. And so we think they are lakes and seas of liquid methane, perhaps with other organic chemicals mixed in. To give you an idea of the scale, this is Lake Superior in North America, and this is one of the, the lakes on Titan. And some of them really are big enough to be called seas. And this is, a, again, an artist's impression. There are plans on the drawing board to send a boat to Titan to sail <laughs> on the seas of methane. Might get enormous waves as well because the gravity is lower and we know that there are very strong winds, so it could be a great place for surfing, but wrap up warm. Other things in our solar system. Comets. This is a beautiful view of a comet. The beautiful tail of the comet. Gas and dust stretching for millions of kilometres sometimes out into space. All of it coming from a tiny object, tiny in space terms anyway, um, a lump of ice and rock just a few kilometres across. This one is Halley's Comet. It's about 20 or 30 kilometres from end to end. And you can see how the sunlight is evaporating the, the, the cold frozen ice and causing it to erupt out of the surface as vapour and produces the, the long tail of the comet. Now, um, back in 2005, NASA sent a mission to visit a comet. It was called Deep Impact. It was named after the disaster movie, the 1998 film Deep Impact. That was a film about a comet hitting the Earth. This, if you like, is NASA's revenge, where the Earth gets to hit a comet. So we sent the space probe on this red path to rendezvous with Comet Temple 1. And the spacecraft came in two parts. The first part, the mothership, flew in front of the comet and uh, off to a safe distance, but it left behind an impactor probe, a chunk of equipment that sat in the path of the comet with cameras and transmitters on board, and it sat there as the comet travelled towards it. And this is what it saw. Here is a lump of ice and rock about four kilometres from end to end, so it's a pretty hefty chunk of material about the size of Oxford, um, and it's travelling at around 10 kilometres per second which is quite fast. So it wouldn't take you very long to get to London at that speed, just a few seconds. So the poor impactor is sitting there, and this is the picture it took. And a few seconds later, this is the picture it took. 
a few seconds after that, that's the picture it took. And this is the last picture it took because before it could take any more pictures and send them back to the mothership, the comet ran over it. This is the picture taken by the mothership, which was at a safe distance. The flash of the impact as the impactor vaporised as it hit the surface of the comet at 10 kilometres per second is so bright it's temporarily burnt out the camera. And over the next few minutes and hours, an enormous burst of vapour and dust erupted from the site of the impact, from inside the comet. We think it blasted out a crater about the size of Wembley Stadium. More on that in a moment. So just a, an object, you know, no bigger than this, sort of this podium, hitting at 10 kilometres per second, blast out a huge crater. And here you can see the enormous cloud of dust and vapour which erupted out. And scientists were studying uh, with all sorts of instruments this thing. They weren't just doing it for fun, they wanted to know what comets were made for, from for two reasons. One is that they preserve a pristine record of the material from which the solar system formed. So sort of like kept it in a deep freeze for billions of years. So this dust that's coming out is what the Earth is made of originally. But also they wanted to find out what the rigidity, the internal composition of the comet is, because at some point we might need to know that because we might need to stop a comet from hitting us. So the story has a twist in the tale, a very recent twist, because on Valentine's Day this year, another spacecraft um, called Stardust visited the same comet, Comet Temple 1, and this is a picture that it took. And scientists were very keen to see what the crater looked like uh, after six years. Uh, and so here we go. So this is the original deep impact image before the impact. And this is the stardust image from this year, and you can see the same two craters. The, the thing is continually tumbling end over end, so it's at a different orientation. But let's zoom in, and you can see here this is a crater the size of Wembley that we have made on the surface of another body in the solar system. So we made quite a dent in the comet. And as I said, why crash probes into comets? Well, because comets sometimes crash into us, and we have very strong evidence of what happens when, when these things hit us. When I was little, I couldn't decide whether I wanted to study astronomy or dinosaurs, because I was obsessed with both of them. It's a bit of a stereotypical geek story, really, isn't it? Um, but luckily, in 1980, those two subjects came together in a really interesting way. My dinosaur books, when I was a child, said that the dinosaurs ruled the Earth for millions of years, very successfully, and then suddenly, 65 million years ago, very, very suddenly, they became extinct. And we might never know what caused that extinction. But in 1980, some scientists came up with a very, very compelling um, reason for what may have killed off the dinosaurs. And if you've ever been on holiday to Cancun in Mexico, you were very close to ground zero because 65 million years ago that would not have been a very nice place to be on holiday. This is a satellite image uh, of this part of the Yucatan Peninsula and I think you can just see, can you see that curved line? Very, very faint. But with geological scanning instruments which can see through the top layers of rock, this is what you see. It's a hole in the Earth's surface 180 kilometres across. It's an impact crater, just like the ones on the moon or on, um, on that comet that we saw. It was created by an object 10 kilometres across, travelling at around 20 kilometres per second, and it is 65 million years old. It's the smoking gun. What would have happened? Well, this is an artist's impression, luckily not a photograph, of a massive object, an asteroid or a comet, striking the Earth. A split second later, travelling at that speed, the entire object and a lot of what it has just hit will be completely vaporised. Here you go. 
And these are some of the effects. The flash from the explosion, the heat and light, so intense that thousands of kilometres away, plants and animals would be set on fire just from the heat from the flash. A supersonic shockwave travelling outwards in all directions would have raced across the Earth's surface like a hurricane-force wind travelling for thousands and thousands of kilometres, knocking everything flat in its path. Because the object struck over the sea, it would have pushed huge amounts of water out in all directions. Just a few weeks ago, we had a horrible reminder of what happens when we get tsunamis with those awful pictures from Japan. Those tsunami waves were a few metres high, perhaps up to 10 metres in some areas, 30 feet. The tsunamis produced by this impact would have been at least 100 metres, 300 feet high. They would have travelled out across all the ocean basins on Earth and when they hit land they would have just rolled in for hundreds of kilometres. We find fossil beds of all sorts of animals all jumbled up together as if they'd been swept by this enormous wave. Didn't stop there. Debris from the impact rained down across the entire world starting forest fires and, and causing secondary explosions. Dust from the impact within a few days spread out throughout the entire atmosphere and after a couple of days the Earth from space would have looked like that picture of Venus that I showed you. You would not be able to see the ground. No light got to the ground, no heat. Within days the temperature at the surface would have dropped to freezing. Plants and animals would have started to die. Photosynthesis would stop. The entire food chain collapsed. Eventually the dust starts to settle out of the atmosphere settles all over the world and it left a signature. Um, little particles of a rare metal called iridium which is very rare on Earth but common in rocks from space and that was the second clue that this was a space uh, rock which had caused it and we find it in this layer on top of the dinosaur fossils and these rocks have no dinosaur fossils because the dinosaurs are extinct. So 70% of all species on Earth were extinguished by that event which just took a few seconds really uh, and it ended hundreds of, of millions of years of domination of the Earth by the dinosaurs. And all of the animals and plants that are alive today, including us, owe their existence to the fact that somehow, by luck, probably not by judgment, their ancestors managed to survive the impact. The dinosaurs didn't, and these creatures are alive today because their ancestors survived the impact. The only dinosaurs that survived are the birds, perhaps because they had feathers for insulation and could fly long distances to look for sources of food. And if you want to know more about that, we actually have a big programme and exhibition and planetarium shows at the observatory. So if you're planning to come to London um, over the spring or summer, do pick up one of the flyers which are down here at the front. And we've got this fabulous picture of a fireball about to destroy London, which um, I'm very proud of. Now, I want to... We've looked at the other objects in our solar system. I want, again, to consider the Earth as a planet. And here's this beautiful picture by Galileo um, of the Earth and how special it is, the living planet... Uh, and it's very clear that it's a living planet with liquid water, oxygen, chlorophyll from this image. But this is taken from close by. This is the Earth as seen from Mars. A picture taken by one of those spacecraft that's currently orbiting Mars, told to turn its camera back home, take the snapshot. There's the Moon, there's the Earth. Even from Mars, you can tell very easily that the Earth is special. That shiny bit is sunlight reflecting off the Pacific Ocean. With very simple equipment, you could again see the signature of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere and perhaps even the green colour of chlorophyll on Earth's continents. And this is, it looks like a really rubbish, grainy, fuzzy picture, doesn't it? Um, I'm going to tell you this, I think, is one of the most important and significant photographs 
ever taken. It's taken a few years ago now by one of those spacecraft, um, one of the Voyager craft, which was launched in the 70s, toured the solar system, and is now just about at the edge of the solar system, the most distant and the fastest object that human beings have ever created. Back in the 90s, and when it was already a long way out, beyond Pluto, it was told to point its camera back home, and this is the picture that it took of the Earth, just a few pixels across. And at the time, Carl Sagan, the famous uh, cosmologist, said, look at that pale blue dot. Everybody you have ever met, everyone you've ever heard of, everyone in human history, all lived there. That's all of us. That's a portrait of the whole human race. And that's why I say it's one of the most important pictures ever taken. It is very humbling because there's a lot of nothing around us. And remember, that is the only place in the universe we know of where we could comfortably survive. So really tiny, tiny speck. And yet, and yet, apes who evolved on this tiny speck in the middle of so much nothingness have been able to send a machine to the edge of the solar system and take a picture and beam it back, which I think actually is pretty amazing. So it's a humbling picture, but it's also a very inspiring picture. Shows what we can do when we set our mind to it. This, the most important thing in the solar system, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the sun. It's the most important star in the universe for us. Almost all life on Earth is ultimately powered by it. The plants converting its radiation into food that we all then somehow or other subsist on. But it is actually just one star of many, and this is our local corner of the universe, our little neighbourhood of the Milky Way galaxy. And there's the sun, and you can see this little bar here. This is 10 light years. That means it takes light travelling at 300 million metres per second, 10 years to go along there. And you can see our nearest neighbours in space, Alpha and Proxima Centauri. It takes light just over four years to cross from one star to the other. Alpha Centauri, very similar to the Sun. If you go to the Southern Hemisphere, it's not visible from, um, from the Northern Hemisphere, but it's a very prominent star in the sky, a yellowish star, very pretty. Um, and I really feel amazed when I see it because that is probably what the Sun would look like from any planets that are going around Alpha Centauri. They're very similar kind of size and brightness, these two stars. Um, but of course, when you look at Alpha Centauri, you're not seeing it as it is in 2011. You're seeing it as it was in 2007, because it has taken light four years to cross the distance. And if there are astronomers on any planets around Alpha Centauri, they, tonight, will be seeing the Earth as it is in, or as it was in 2007, to see it as it is in 2011, they're going to have to wait four years. So communicating across these distances is going to be a very slow process if there is anyone out there. This, however, is just a tiny, tiny corner of the universe. This is a patch of sky, a uh, picture taken by Hubble, and you can see in it there are thousands upon thousands of stars. And this, again, is just a tiny patch, so our corner of the universe would fit somewhere down into there. And this itself is just a tiny part of the Milky Way galaxy. This is what we think it looks like. If we could get outside it and look back, it would take us literally thousands of years to do that, though. Um, not really possible at the moment. And here it is, a huge city of stars, swirling spiral arms, a huge, dense clump of billions of stars in the centre, and then beautiful spiral arms. And we live in one of the spiral arms just out here in the suburbs, the boring suburbs. But as we'll see in a moment, it might not be a bad thing to be far away from the, uh, the bright lights of the um, galactic city centre, because it might be quite a dangerous place. We'll see in a moment why. 
Um, more than 100,000 million stars make up the Milky Way. We're not quite sure how many. Light takes 100,000 years to cross from one side to the other, and we're about two-thirds out from the centre. So really are in the suburbs, in the sticks. Um, and that's, that's us, that's where we are there. That's just to give you another view of the Milky Way, what we think it looks like. It's looking down, you can see the spiral arms, the centre. This is looking from the side. You can see how flat the spiral part is, and the centre's a bit more kind of fat and bulgy. Billions upon billions of stars making up this structure, and the Sun just one of them. Again, that's just a, a diagram to show you where we are in the galaxy. This is what it looks like from Earth, so this is sort of a fisheye view of the night sky. Probably you won't get to see this from Oxford, certainly can't see it from Greenwich, the light pollution is too great, but from a really dark sky, if you've gone somewhere dark on holiday, uh, you will see the Milky Way, and this is what it looks like, a band of light stretching across the sky. This is us looking into the disk of the galaxy and looking towards the centre, actually, the centre of the galaxy is here. We'd love to be able to see right down into the centre, all those billions of stars all clustered together, the, the bright lights where all the exciting stuff is happening in our galaxy. Unfortunately, can you see these dark blotches? These are dense clouds of dust, a bit like that one we saw with Hubble at the beginning, where new stars are forming. So it's very exciting. They're interesting in their own right, but they do something annoying, which is they block the view of the centre of the galaxy. We can't see down into the centre with visible light. However, we've just seen that there are two ways of seeing through um, dust and, and clouds like this. One is to use infrared light which can pass through the dust, and the other is to use radio waves, radar radio waves, which can also pass through the dust clouds. And we've used both those techniques to see into the centre of the galaxy. So we're going to zoom right down into my laser pointer dot to see what lies right at the heart of our galaxy inside that big cluster of billions of stars. And this is what it looks like in the radio. So this is a false colour image. You can see these sort of swirling kind of streams of glowing gas. They're glowing with radio waves and they're all swirling in towards this thing here. And we call this object Sagittarius A star. Um, very boring astronomical um, term for it. It is the dead centre of our galaxy. Something in the centre of our galaxy is pulling in streams of gas which is glowing in radio waves. What's it look like in the infrared? Well, here we go. Zooming in on that uh, area, this is now an infrared telescope looking at the stars in the centre of the galaxy. And this is just a tiny region, 10 light days across. So you can see there are many, many more stars packed into the centre of the galaxy than there are in our part of the galaxy. If you lived on a planet going around one of these stars, you would never have a night time because even when your, your part of the world was turned away from your sun, the sky would be full of incredibly close, incredibly bright stars that would light up um, the night sky. Um, so it would be quite an exciting place to live, but as we'll see, maybe a little bit too exciting because astronomers have been taking images of the centre of the galaxy for the last 20 years and they've been able to put those images together to form a movie sequence and that's what we're going to um, look at now. Let me um, open... Oops, what have I done? Open my movie. I'm trying to get this to... Uh, here we go. No, 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 that's not what I want to do. Sorry about this technical hitch. Right. There we go. Okay, so here are the stars, and this is what they look like over a 10-year period. See the date changing here? 
and you can see the stars actually moving. And we're going to zoom in on the central region. This is that object that all the radio stuff was coming towards. It doesn't give off any infrared light, so we can't see it. But look how the stars are racing around it. I just think this is incredible, that we can make a movie of the centre of the galaxy. The stars in our night sky don't change. They are all moving around the centre of the galaxy, but very, very slowly. It takes millions of years, really, to see any difference. In the centre of the galaxy, the stars are whizzing around this central point so quickly that in just 10 years, well within a human lifetime, we can see their motion. But what is the thing at the centre of the galaxy that they are all orbiting around? What is the thing that is dragging all of that radio-emitting gas in? Well, from the orbit of the stars and the speed that they're moving, we can use Newton's equations to work out the mass of the object at the centre. It is tiny, it's smaller than our solar system, but it contains as much material as three million stars like the Sun. Three million stars crammed into a tiny, tiny region at the centre of the galaxy. The only thing it can be is a black hole, a supermassive black hole sitting at the centre of the galaxy. We are orbiting it right now. It takes us 230 million years to go round. It takes these stars just a few years to go round. But that's what is at the centre of the galaxy, and that's what we've discovered. Really amazing. Um, let's have a look at what it might look like. Oops. So this... Oops, what have I done? That's what I want to do. This is a computer-generated image. Black holes are black. All of that material crushed down into that tiny, tiny space has a tremendous gravitational field. The gravitational field is so strong that within a certain distance, this black region here, even light isn't travelling fast enough to escape. So this spherical region at the centre of the galaxy looks completely black because no light can get out of it. The gravity outside that region is still pretty strong and it bends the light coming from behind it. So here's the, the rest of the Milky Way behind it and you can see how the, the light has been distorted, just like a lens. So this is what we think the black hole would look like from up close, but you probably wouldn't want to get that close because every so often perhaps one of the stars that we just saw does, perhaps every few million years, and this is what would happen. Here it comes, in it goes. The gravity wrenches the star apart and it spirals in and disappears into the black hole. And now the black hole weighs three million and one times the mass of a typical star. So that's what it's doing. It's at the centre of the galaxy. And that's why I say it may actually be better to live in the boring old suburbs than it is to live downtown in a galaxy like the Milky Way. Our galaxy is not the only place in the universe. Um, and I'm winding up now as we move further out. We have neighbours. Here's the Milky Way. And here is our nearest large neighbour in space. M31, or the Andromeda Galaxy. It's two and a half million light years away. And this is what it looks like through a moderately sized telescope, but you can actually see it with the naked eye. It's in the constellation of Andromeda. Uh, it looks like a little smudge of light. Um, with a good star chart, you will be able to find it. Have a look, because that is the most distant thing you will ever see with the naked eye. The photons of light hitting your eye have been travelling towards you for two and a half million years. This picture is not a picture of Andromeda in um, the 21st century. It's a picture of Andromeda two and a half million years BC. Um, to see what it looks like now, we're going to have to wait two and a half million years for the light to reach us. And equally, if there are astronomers living on planets around the billions of stars in Andromeda, they will have to wait two and a half billion years to see us. At the moment, if they have very powerful telescopes, what they will see is our ancestors on those savannas in Africa two and a half billion years ago. So that's our nearest neighbour in the universe. And there are billions of other galaxies. And here is a much richer um, 
area of the universe. There are thousands of galaxies in this area. The night sky, again, would look really spectacular if you lived on a planet around a star in one of these galaxies. Um, but there are literally billions of galaxies in the universe. And this is uh, just, again, um, a reminder to show you another little movie. Um, here we go. Oops. And it's this one. And this is a Hubble picture of a galaxy called the Whirlpool, a bit further away from Andromeda, um, but just really to give you an idea of what a galaxy is. And again, our Milky Way, probably very similar to this. So here's the central region, a black hole right down in the centre, tiny, but weighing millions of times the mass of a star, billions of stars in that um, fat central region, and then the thinner disk with the spiral arms spiralling out. You see the, the dark bands of dust that we see in our own galaxy that block our view of the centre. You see those pink glowing clouds of hydrogen gas, which is where new stars forming like the one we saw with Hubble at the beginning and as we zoom out billions upon billions of stars are in this picture um, who knows many of them with their own planets perhaps with life around them just really really spectacular and there are billions of galaxies like this in the universe so uh, really is pretty pretty astonishing and I want again to um, just really make you feel very very humble because uh, this is one of my favourite, um, one of my favourite, I'm using my left hand, this is really not a sensible thing to do. In 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope was ordered to point at a blank patch of sky for about a week. Now, Hubble costs about £50,000 an hour to use. Why on earth would you point it at a blank patch of sky for a week. You can do the maths in your head. I'm not going to try and do it, but that's a lot of money. Um, well, Hubble can do something that our eye can't do, and that is it can store the light and just keep stacking it up and stacking it up. And that means that the longer it stares, the fainter and fainter it can see and the further and further it can see. And that's what it was told to do. And this is just to show you what, uh, what it did. So this is a constellation even I can do. It's the plough, part of Ursa Major, and this is where Hubble was told to stare for a week in 1990. So we're going to zoom in, that tiny patch of sky that Hubble looks at, zoom in. I'm going to zoom in, and you can see really nothing there where it's, where it's looking. This is, this is where it looked, and after a week, this is what it saw. Thousands of galaxies emerged after this really faint, long observation. Everything you can see in this image is not a star in our Milky Way galaxy. It is an individual galaxy. Some nearby, you can see that they have sort of spiral structure. Others further and further away. These tiny, tiny specks um, are galaxies so far away that we are seeing them as they were in the very early stages of the universe. Their light has been travelling towards us for billions of years, perhaps 9 or 10 billion years. These are what galaxies looked like, perhaps what our own galaxy looked like in the very early stages of the universe. So we're seeing actually history as we look further and further out. We're like looking down a... This picture is not flat, it's a tunnel looking way, way out into the universe and looking back in time as the light travel time increases. So this is why astronomers are so keen, because it shows us the history of the universe in one amazing picture and we now actually have even deeper images than this that Hubble has created over the, the intervening years. This image here covers an area of sky about the size of a grain of salt held at arm's length. There are thousands of galaxies in that image. Go outside when it's dark, hold a grain of salt up and imagine that repeated over the entire sky. 
We think there are at least 100,000 million other galaxies in the universe, in the observable universe. We don't know how far the universe stretches. There may be many, many more. We are one star out of a few hundred billion stars in one galaxy out of hundreds of billions of galaxies. The scale is mind-boggling. I don't know what those numbers mean. I, can't, I can do the maths, but I can't grasp them. Um, it's just astonishing. This is what we've discovered in the last century or so of studying the universe without being able to go into space as Yuri Gagarin did. We wouldn't be able to make images like this. So there we go. Um, really is quite astonishing. Now, I want to finish on an optimistic note. So I've made you feel so, so small and so tiny and so humble. Even our sun will not last forever. And we know from studying others out of the billions of stars in our galaxy very, very well what the history, the life history of a star like our sun is. We know how stars are born. They're born in these clouds of gas like the one we saw with Hubble right at the beginning of the talk. And we know that as the stars collapse, they form into what we see in the, in the daytime sky. The sun, a big ball of glowing superheated gas with nuclear reactions at its centre. And it will persist in this kind of um, state much as we know it now, for billions of years. And a star like the Sun, this, this kind of stage of its life will last for about 10 billion years. We're about halfway through, about 5 billion years in. So we've got probably about 5 billion years uh, of life left in the Sun. But eventually, it will run out of fuel and it will swell up to become a red giant star. A hundred times, excuse me, a uh, hundred times its current size. So this is the Sun now, and this is what the Sun will look like in 5 billion years' time. Uh, where is the Earth's orbit? Well, if the Sun's here, the Earth is about here. So Venus and Mercury will definitely be swallowed up. The Earth, we're not sure. It might just escape being completely swallowed. Either way, this is what fate has in store for us. It will be frazzled to a crisp. There's no getting around it. That's what's going to happen. But don't worry, it's five billion years in the future. And it will be a relatively slow death. So this is a series of, of images um, showing you the history of the planet. So this is perhaps half a billion years in the future. The Earth, if we've looked after it, still a recognisable place, still able to support complex life, plants and animals, still as beautiful as it is today. But over the next few billion years, as the sun gradually starts to heat and swell, the oceans will start to evaporate. The Earth will eventually come to be much like Venus with a dry surface and a thick, soupy, superheated atmosphere. And eventually, even the atmosphere will be boiled away and the Earth will become a barren, airless cinder and perhaps even be swallowed by the sun as it expands to its red giant stage. However, however, it's not all doom and gloom because, again, something incredible has happened in the last 15 years um, unique in the whole of human history uh, because we now know for the first time in, in human history that there are other planets around other stars, not just the eight planets in our solar system. Um, the, the latest figure, it's probably gone up since I last checked, is that we know for sure of over 500 other planets going around other stars. Um, and in fact, we have another 1,500 suspected um, cases, and that number is going up all of the time. At the moment, we don't know of any that are exactly like the Earth. Um, some of them are too hot, some of them are too big, some of them are too cold. But 
um, as time goes by and the data comes in, we are homing in on planets that are like the Earth and at just the right distance from their star to have temperatures for liquid water. And I think in the next few years, um, we will actually know how common planets like the Earth are. And so it may well be that in five billion years' time, if we're still around or our descendants are still around, this is where we will want to go and live a planet, a new planet around a younger star. There are certainly many, many stars and many, many planets in our galaxy. Um, and so hopefully there's a long, long future out there for the human race. I'll stop there. I've gone on for far too long. Thank you very much. <laughs>